This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. We celebrate with those who celebrate, and we weep with those who weep, because that's family. So while we do honor, and we don't tone down the honoring of the celebration of moms, at the same time, we recognize that it's a difficult day for some of us in the room. And uh, so we, we, uh, we're sensitive to those who struggle, and we celebrate those who are celebrating, and we thank God. If you weren't here last week, this is the second part of a sermon, and I'm going to uh, review last week really quickly, so you'll be caught up, and then we're going to go to the second part of a parable. It's, we're, we're in a series on parables, which are stories that Jesus told. The series is called The Storyteller, because we are focusing on Jesus and how he revealed the Father through stories that he told. So that's what we're doing, and this is the second part of the, the parable that's typically called The Prodigal Son. Uh, it'll be the only parable that we'll spend two weeks on. As I've been studying these past couple weeks, because it's a two-parter, I had an interesting experience. A couple of weeks ago, I lost my iPad. And it's, it's not probably worth very much money. It's one of the very uh, first ones that came out. So it's dated and it's slow and it's, it's not cutting edge. But it did have access to all my emails, my finances. And so it's, it's kind of important, even though it may not be that valuable on the market. I lost it and I, f- I was almost certain I lost it Sunday at church. Um, and so uh, I talked to our office manager about it. Did she know? Did she heard anything? No. I talked to the facilities person. Hey, who locked up? Have you seen my iPad? No. I talked to our security person and was thinking, okay, do we like roll tape? We have security cameras. We go back and look, and I'm expecting somebody in like a spandex black cat burglar suit to be sneaking in on camera and grabbing my iPad and disappearing like a ninja or something. So I'm thinking someone took my iPad. We need to find who that person is. Um, or do I get up next Sunday and say, the doors are locked until somebody fesses up. Who took it? And no one goes anywhere except we're going to run laps. 30 minutes and then we're running, you know, like a coach or something. So what do I do? And uh, I looked everywhere. I mean, I, I looked at my backpack three times. I looked at my office a couple times, looked at my home. And I was ready to press a button, uh, which erases distant, remotely relate, erases everything on the iPad uh, from my computer. And I thought, you know, before I do that, I'm going to look one more time in my backpack, and you know what's coming. All the moms in the room knows what's coming, (laughs) because you probably have someone in your house with man eyes, and uh, so (laughs) the fourth time is the charm, as they say. And so as I rummaged through my backpack, there it was. There was no cat burglar. Uh, there was no, it was there all the time. And rather than feel bad about being such an idiot, I did go back to all those people and say, hey, I found it, I found it, sorry. Uh, but I was just excited. I was excited because no one had read all my emails and stolen all my money. So I was excited about that. I was excited about just having it back. I, I, what, what I thought was lost, I now had found. And there was a relief uh, and there was a joy to finding it. And the parable we're reading today is about the joy of finding what is lost. And it's not a single parable. It's three parables in a row that Jesus told. One is a guy, that, a shepherd that loses his sheep and goes after the sheep. The second one is a lady 
lady who loses a coin and cleans the house and sweeps and turns on a light to find her coin. And the third one is about a son who is lost and is found, the parable of the prodigal son. And so we looked at this last week. I'm going to review last week and then we're going to look at the second scene because it's a parable in two scenes about the joy of finding what is lost. So what we read last week was there was a father and... um, Jesus tells the story, it's in Luke 15, by the way, if you want to turn there, Luke 15. Uh, there, there is a father whose son comes to him, his young son, and says, give me my inheritance. And he wants his inheritance. He has a third of the family estate. The older brother gets two thirds. He gets one third. And he tells Jesus, give me, um, he tells the father rather, give me my estate. Give me my part of the estate. So the father gives it to him. Uh, the implication is that he sells his land because the estate, the family estate was the family farm which stayed for generations in the family. So he gives up a third of the family estate, gives it to the son. The son goes off and he squanders it in a distant land. Uh, he parties. We find out he spends money on prostitutes and he squanders the entire amount of money. And then uh, he gets broke. All his friends leave him. He has to hire himself out to work for a Gentile, which was very concerning to the original audience. Not only does he work for a Gentile, but he works for a Gentile pig farmer, which is not a good place for a fine uh, boy of Jewish heritage to be. And so he is working among the pigs. While he is working among the pigs, the story portrays him just like a pig. He, he looks at the pig food and he desires food because he has none. And he comes to himself and he turns, the Bible word would be repents. And he turns and says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm just going to try to be a servant. Just let me work for him. I'm not going to come back as a son. I'm not going to be in the family. I am a, a shame and a disgrace on the family. And I see that I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my family, but I do want to go back and just work. And the implication is probably he thought he could work and pay off his debt to his dad. So he, he gets, his repentance speech ready. It's sincere. He prepares it. He goes back. And as he is approaching his house, his dad sees him. And before he can even get the speech out, his dad runs to him. He embraces him. He hugs him and kisses him and says, my son has returned. There's joy. And then he restores him instantly to the family before he can even get his, I'm sorry speech. I'll work. I'll pay it all back. I'm terrible son. You don't owe me. Before he can say anything, the father is putting on him the finest garment, which is probably the father's robe, the finest robe in the house. It's this picture of you're back in the family. You're wearing dad's clothing. He, he gives him a ring. It's probably not just a piece of jewelry, but a signet ring, which was a sign of fam- familial authority. Signet ring is what you would press in wax to seal a contract or an agreement or a letter. It's a restoration to authority. So before he can even get his speech out, he's like, you're back you're back and in charge of some of the estate. Even after all he had done, uh, he, he puts shoes on his feet because slaves were barefoot, but free men and women wore shoes. So he's free, he's in the family, he's restored to authority. He has done nothing to earn or deserve any of this. Then the dad has been raising a calf that's special for a special occasion, kills it, and they eat and have a big party. There's music, there's dancing. It's a huge party to celebrate that his son has come home. And it's a picture of God's grace because the son deserved consequences. He deserved to be rejected. He deserved to be cast out of the family. He deserved to pay off his debt. And the father said, even though you deserve punishment, I forgive you with mercy and not just forgive you and call it even. I restore you to the family and I celebrate your homecoming. 
It's a beautiful picture of the love of the Father. Jesus is telling a story about how God, the Heavenly Father, loves us and welcomes those who return in faith towards him. Now, in verse 25, we read Acts 2, I mean, the Act 2 of the same story. This is the second part of the same story. Now, his older son was in the field. This is not the one who ran away. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received back safe and sound, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So he welcomes uh, the son home and the older son responds very differently to the coming home of his brother. Now, to understand what's going on here, it's really important that we understand the audience. So go back to verse one of chapter 15 and this tells us who Jesus is telling the story to. Verse one, now tax collectors who were very bad in that culture, they, were, uh, they extorted people for money. They were traitors to their own people. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near him, Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he's telling the story to religious people who are upset because Jesus is welcoming not just sinners, but notorious sinners, Uh, the sexually immoral, those who cheat and manipulate and lord over others like tax collectors. Jesus is eating with these people, which means he is welcoming them. He is hanging out with them. He is befriending them. And the religious people are upset. That's who he's telling the story to. And then we meet this account of the older brother. Now, what's happening? Well, the older brother comes in from the field, and the party is already kicked off, welcoming the younger brother home. And so he asks one of the servants, hey, what is going on? He hears music, it says, and he asks what is going on, and he, he says to him, the servant says, look, uh, your brother has returned, and the, he says, quote, he is, your father has received him back safe and sound. He's been received And there's a celebration that he is back. Now, you would anticipate that the brother would celebrate. My lost brother who was ruining his life has come home and and we're we're having a party. This is tremendous. You would expect that he is celebrate, but he does not celebrate. It is a big party. Excuse me. Likely, the village is invited. The, there's no way this small family is going to eat the fattened calf. This is, uh, this is saved for a, a, a big celebration. So likely, others in the town are there celebrating. But he doesn't celebrate. He is angry, and actually it says he refuses 
to go in, verse 28. He's angry and refused to go into the party. What the father celebrates, the older son does not celebrate. What thrills the dad does not thrill the older brother. What thrills the dad is verse 32. He says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. Your brother was lost. Your brother was dead to us, but he is back. He is found. This deserves celebration, but the older brother does not celebrate. So the father pursues him. Verse, uh, verse 28 says, the, when the father came out, he entreated him. The father comes out to the older brother, leaves the party, and appeals to him, urges him, please come in and celebrate this great affair, this great joy, but he will have none of it. Matter of fact, look what he says instead, verse 29, look, he speaks to his dad, look, these many years I've served you. He is upset. I never disobeyed your command. You never even gave me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. He is angry. Uh, And he's speaking to his father very much like the younger son did when he left. It's disrespectful. The younger son said, literally, give me my money while the father's alive. It's like, I wish you were dead, but you're not. So act like you're dead and give me my inheritance now. And the younger son is equally disrespectful. He's speaking with disdain. He's saying, look what I've done for you. All these years I've served you. Look at what I have done for you. I have obeyed. And what have you done for me? You have never given me even a goat. What's the implication? I have been good. I have obeyed the family rules. I have brought honor to you as my father. You owe me. You owe me. Look at how he speaks of his brother. He's demanding. He feels like he's owed something for his obedience. Look how he speaks of his brother. Yet when this son of yours comes home, he doesn't even say my brother. He distanced himself from the sinful brother. When this son of yours comes home, not my brother. And how does he view his brother's actions? He says, well, he devoured your property. He took the family inheritance, our standing in the community. This is a culture based on honor and, and, and place in society. Our standing in the community has changed because we lost a third of our inheritance, of our property, of the family farm, whatever it is. We lost a third of this because he went and spent it on prostitutes. What took years for us to make as a family, what's been passed down generation to generation, he blew sleeping with prostitutes. And now you're killing the fattened calf for him? What's he saying? I deserve a feast. I'm the rule keeper. I'm the good son. I deserve a feast, not him. This older brother does not value mercy. He does not treasure grace. He is not celebrating that his brother is alive and has been found. The father tells him, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. But that means nothing to the older brother because he doesn't care about being with the father. I've, I've always been with you, he says to his son, but he doesn't care. He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's things just like the younger brother. You see, for all their differences, the two brothers are remarkably, remarkably similar. They both disgrace their father. One disgraces his father, 
by taking his inheritance and going and squandering it and defying his father. But the older brother disgraces his father as well. He, he refuses to come in on perhaps the biggest day of the father's life, the biggest party he's ever thrown for the family and likely the village. He, he refuses to enter into the joy of his father on his father's greatest day of celebration. You see, they are both alienated from the father. The younger brother and the older brother are both alienated from their father. And so Jesus is telling a story that gets at this idea that there are more than one way, there's more than one way to be separated from God. We can separate ourselves from God in different ways. And the sons represent the two kinds of hearers that would be hearing Jesus speak. We can separate God by just outright rebellion, running away from him, living a life totally on our own, doing our own thing, trying to be fulfilled through our own pursuit of wealth and uh, consumerism and sexual fulfillment, uh, living a loose, uh, a sexually loose life, trying to be hedonistic and just find uh, our purpose and pleasure like the younger son does. We can do that. And we're separated from the father. He was a long way off. But think about the older brother. He too is separated from the father. He too is distant. He too is disrespectful. He too won't uh, enjoy the father's party. He has separated himself as well. And so these are the two groups of people he's speaking to. The younger brother clearly is representing the tax collectors and the sinners that are listening, that are welcomed, that Jesus is welcoming. And the older brother represents the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, those who grumble because Jesus is eating with those people. Those people. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a story that would have just caught them uh, perhaps by surprise and would have been shocking to the Pharisees. They would have been shocked by the story. We hear the story and our hearts are warmed that the boy has come home. But the religious leaders who heard this would have been absolutely offended by what Jesus is saying. Because if they got it, he is calling them out. Last week, I recommended a book that we have at the Resource Center. I cannot recommend it highly enough. It's called The Prodigal God. It has shaped my understanding of grace. It's shaped these two sermons significantly. Um, it's by Tim Keller, and you can get it out there. Uh, whenever we do a series, we'll have some books available in the resources. It's right across from the cafe out there uh, that we'll have some books available for you. Um, but I won't recommend many books as highly as I'm going to recommend this book. This might be a top 10 book for me. Um, period. Uh, so it's very, very good book. I'd recommend it. It's all about this story. Let me read this quote to you from Tim Keller, where he kind of gives the summary of act two, which is, uh, the older brother, um, and his response to his dad. So listen to this quote from the prodigal God, but act two comes to an unthinkable conclusion. Jesus, the storyteller, deliberately leaves the elder brother in his alienated state. The bad son enters the father's feast, but the good son will not. The lover of prostitutes is saved, but the man of moral rectitude is still lost. We can almost hear the Pharisees gasp as the story ends. It was the complete reversal of everything they had been taught. Jesus does not simply leave it at that. It gets even more shocking. 
Why doesn't the elder brother go in? He himself gives the reason. Because I've never disobeyed you. It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and his father. It's the pride he has in his moral record. It's not his wrongdoing, but his righteousness that is keeping him from sharing in the feast of his father. The story is to the Pharisees, for they didn't have real righteousness or real obedience. They had self-righteousness like the older brother, and that is what separated them from the father. The story is ultimately about the loving father, but if we had to pick a son, the story's really not about the quote-unquote prodigal son. It's really not about the son who runs away and squanders everything. It's really about the older son. If you want to know what a parable is, is, is really about, there's, there's two ways, two important questions to ask. One is, who is the target audience? The target audience determines the purpose of the parable. The target audience here is those who are grumbling because Jesus receives sinners. The Pharisees, represented by the older brother. And secondly, when we read a parable, it's what we're left with that is the focus. We're not left with the younger brother and the party. We're left with the party going on and the father coming out to the older brother to draw him in. The older brother acts as the punchline to a joke. It's not a joke, but he is the focus of the story. It's really about him. And if you notice, we don't know if he goes in or not. It ends in verse 32 with uh, Jesus saying, it was fitting to celebrate, the father saying, it's fitting to celebrate. Your brother was dead, he's now alive. He was lost and now is found. We don't know if he ever goes in or not. It's a story that is left without a conclusion. Why? Because it's an appeal to those who are self-righteous to come on in. It's one of those stories where you decide. You figure out how it ends. And it's an invitation. It's an implicit invitation to the Pharisees to lay down their self-righteousness and to receive the Father's embrace, to come into the party where music is playing, People are dancing, wine is flowing, and there is love for sinners who will turn and trust in Christ. He is reaching out, and for those who will receive, there is a party. You see, just like the younger brother wakes up and finds himself in a pigsty, the older brother is in a pigsty as well. It's just a different kind of pigsty. It's a cleaner pigsty, but it's a pigsty. It's a pigsty of self-righteousness, of trusting his own works and his own good deeds in assuming that God owes him because of what he has done for God, just like the Pharisees. Consider the attitude that's represented by the older brother in the story. He is angry, he is bitter, and what is anger and bitterness? It separates him from the love of God. He's not receiving the love of God. He refuses the warm embrace of God, rather to stand outside the party on his own, trusting in his own good works. He's a religious man who is doing the right thing, yet he is in his eyes, yet he is separated from God. What else does he do? Not only is he angry and bitter, but he's judgmental. He's self-righteous. Look at how he compares himself horizontally, so vertically, to the father. He's resisting his love and standing on his own good works. Horizontally, with the brother, he is judgmental. He sits in judgment of his brother. That son of yours. 
It's the attitude like those people, whoever those people are. It's those people. It's, it's self-righteous. He, he devoured your property with prostitutes. Older brothers are very aware of the sins of others, yet he is blind to his own sin. He's blind to his own self-righteousness, which Jesus is correcting in the story. He won't rely on the Father's mercy. He doesn't see his need. And he's separated from the Father. That's the shocking message to religious people like the Pharisees and like us. One last observation from the story before we make some application. We didn't study the other two parables, so you can read them afterwards for right now until church is over and you can go read them, trust me on this. Uh, But there's two other parables before this. All three of them go together and they're parallel stories. But there's one difference in the last story and it's a very important difference. All three parables have something that is lost. So in the first parable, it's a sheep that wanders off and is lost. In the second parable, it's a woman that has lost a valuable coin and she's uh, looking for it. So the second one has a lost coin. The third story has a lost son, a son who goes off into a distant land and is lost from the family. Secondly, both parables reveal, all three parables reveal joy when what is lost is found. So when the sheep is found, he tells everyone else, I found my sheep. He tells his neighbors and there's a celebration. When the woman finds finds her coin, it must have been a valuable coin. The story says she actually tells others, rejoice, I found my coin. And when the story of the lost son, when he comes home, When he comes home, there is a huge party and the father is rejoicing, my son is found. So in all three parables, something's lost. In all three parables, there's joy when what is lost is found. But there's one distinct difference. In the first parable, the shepherd who loses the sheep seeks his sheep. He goes out to find it. In the second parable, the woman who loses the coin turns on a light, or turns on a candle, I suppose, lights up the house, sweeps everywhere to find her coin. But in the third parable, nobody goes out searching for the lost brother. It is a detail in three stories that are completely parallel. It is a detail that is stark because there is no search and the absence of a search when the three parables are read together as Jesus told them is to catch our attention. Nobody searched for the younger brother. It was really the older brother's responsibility. The older brother should have been like the shepherd looking for the sheep, the woman looking for the coin. He should have gone out after his younger brother. He reveals that he knows something about what's going on. He says he spent his money on prostitutes. He he may not know exactly where he is, but he knows what he's doing. So the brother is aware, but he does not go after him. Why? He does not go after him because it would cost him if the brother comes home. He probably doesn't even want the brother to come home. The brother took a third of the family inheritance, and now the father says, all that I have is yours. So all the inheritance is his. If the brother is reinstated to the family, as he is, if the brother is reinstated, he is made an heir again in the family and would own a third, again, a third of the brother's already diminished, well, I guess it hadn't been diminished yet, but if he's welcomed back, it would diminish his inheritance. 
Now that he's back in the family, it's not just your brother's back as a servant. It's not just your brother's back out, uh, you know, picking the crops with the hired hands. It's your brother's back and he's wearing dad's robe. He's got dad's authority on his finger. He is fully back. He is an heir. He's not being treated differently. He's back and he is an heir and that cuts in to what the brother has. So he's, lo- he's the first third's gone and now a third of his is now spoken for again. The forgiveness is costly to the brother. He doesn't forgive. He doesn't welcome. He wants, the implication is he wants debts paid. The father says no debts are being paid. You are welcome back into the family. You see, Jesus is doing in his ministry what the older brother should have been doing. He, like the shepherd going for the sheep, like the woman going for the coin, Jesus is going for tax collectors and prostitutes to reach them with the good news of the gospel. He is going out to them. He is welcoming them. He is searching for what is lost to bring it home. Jesus is doing what the older brother should have have done. And he's doing it at great cost, not the cost of an estate, but Matthew 20 says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is demonstrating or will demonstrate the costliness of forgiveness. He's going to give his own life. He is going to search at cost to him to restore what is lost. The elder brother would not search what would have been at cost for him to find a lost brother. He was like, good riddance, more for me. He's gone. That's good. That's the Pharisees. They're not looking for others. But Jesus is going to look for the irreligious, the lost, those who need him. He's even going after the Pharisees because the father in the story goes out to talk to the older brother. He's even going for them and he's going to give his life. And he's going to give his life as a substitute. Jesus doesn't die on the cross as an example for us. He doesn't die on the cross so that we can see what love looks like so that then we can go love other people like that. And if we love other people enough, then we're accepted by God. That's not the story. That's the older brother. The story is that Jesus dies on the cross not to set an example, to, but to be our substitute. He dies in our place. He gives his life a ransom for many. He suffers for us. Our sins are put on him. And God the Father puts his judgment on God the Son. Jesus is treated as we should be treated for our sins. Jesus suffers the judgment, the wrath of God, the holy wrath of God against sin, which we should pay. We should pay for our sins. But that's not what happens. Jesus pays for our sins. He dies in our place. And if we believe, if we trust, not our religious works, but if we come home, if we come to our senses and we come home and say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. I want to know you. I turn to you. I believe in you. If we trust him alone for our salvation, then our sins are forgiven. And and the cost is not paid by us. You can't come back to the Father and pay off your debt. That's the whole story. He can't pay off his debt. He, he starts saying, I want to pay off my debt, but before he can, he's got a robe, he's got hugs and kisses, the music playing, the city is dancing, there's feasting, the fatted calf is killed, it's the party of a lifetime. He can't even say, I'll make it up to you, God. God lavishes him with grace. He does not count his sins 
to him, the younger son. And if you believe in Jesus, God does not count your sins to you. He counts them to Christ. And so you can't come to the Father and say, look, I'll go to church, I'll pray, I'll give to charity, I'll be a better husband, I'll work harder, I'll be a better mom, uh, I'll be a better uh, son or daughter, I'll be a better neighbor. You can't come to God making promises about what you're going to do to be okay with him. You can only recognize that none of your works would make you okay with God. Your bad works separate you from him, and your good works in attempt to make you right with him, they separate you from him as well. The only thing that makes you right for the Father is the work of the Son. It's the work of Jesus that makes us right. He is the, the true older brother that comes after us. He's the one who sits with us. He's the one who gave his life for us and calls us to come and follow him as our Lord, to repent from our sin and follow him with the whole of our life and to receive the gift of eternal life. We receive the riches of the family inheritance because of what our big brother did, Jesus. And that's what he's called. He's called our our brother. It's what he did for us. So how do we apply this? Well, Come home. Come home. If you don't know the Lord, get out of the pigsty. Oh, that's kind of offensive. Oh, it's a lot more offensive than that, if you really saw what it is, sinning against the holy God of the universe. Get out of the pigsty. The the pathway that you are traveling, that you think is going to give you fulfillment, the independence, the calling your own shots, the fulfilling your dreams, the the doing what you want to do at the expense of others, it will never fulfill you. It will end in destruction. So get out. Come home. Come to Christ and ask for forgiveness. Turn to him to receive forgiveness for your sins and to receive new life in him. Maybe you're not like the younger brother. Maybe you are the religious person who isn't seeking to follow the the pathway of self-discovery and independence and doing my own thing. Maybe you're one who's trying to get ahead in life by keeping the rules. Uh, There's, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to make uh, generalizations, but most people are typically rule followers or rule breakers. Most of us fall in one of those categories, younger sons or older sons. Um, most of us kind of have that kind of makeup. And some people are pursuing their own thing. They don't care about the rules. They're, they're throwing off the, 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 the sort of authority that's been on them. They're wanting to do their own thing. They're wanting to have it their way. That's one kind of person. That's you come home. There's another kind of person that's trying to get ahead in life by keeping the rules. They're in the system. They dress like the system. They talk like the system. They act like the system. They're doing the right things to get ahead. And people even do that in the religious system. Do the right moral things so that you get ahead and you're okay with God. Well, you've got to leave that too because that's a pigsty equally. You've got to leave your good work. Did you know there is repentance from good works that must happen to follow Jesus? Now, I'm calling them good works. They're so-called good works. They're works that you're trying to do to make yourself right with God, and you cannot do that. Therefore, they're a bad work. Even a good work's a bad work because you're outside of the party. You're not receiving the grace of the Father. You're not receiving the gift. You're trying to earn your way. So that good work's a bad work. You need to turn from that. We live in the Bible Belt that is filled with people that are trying to reach God through moral uh, obedience, through being a good person. If you have sought to be okay with God through your obedience, then this story says, here's what the story says. If you have sought to be right with God through your obedience, you are lost. You are outside the party. You are, and God is inviting you in. 
God is inviting you into the party. So turn, whether you are the person so far gone, you say if people in this room knew what I have done in my life or in the last week or last night, they wouldn't even want me in here. Well, God does know what you've done and he's calling you home. He's calling you home, so you come home. If you're the religious person that's relied on your own good works, you come home because we all need a savior, rule keepers and rule breakers alike. Others of us in the room are Christians. You say, I've already come home. I've already come home. I I know the Lord. My sins are forgiven. What's the Lord saying to you through this passage? Well, the reality is this story hits home for all of us. It's really a story about the older brother. It's really a story about self-righteousness, and we all have a little bit or a whole lot of Pharisee going on in our heart. There's no one that is exempt from older brother tendencies or younger brother tendencies for that, for that uh, matter. But I'm on the older brother. This is part two. So I'm going to stick there. Uh, we all have that. How does it show up? How does this kind of older brother attitude show up in our lives if we're already Christians? Well, it shows up in our lives whenever we are viewing other people and we're viewing ourselves as superior. Whenever we have that son of yours attitude towards any other person, that's the older brother in our heart. Whenever we're looking at those people, and everybody has those people that we feel superior to, that we look down on, that we say, I'm doing the right thing, and they're not. And I, I, they, they, they upset me because of that. Either we're mildly annoyed or we're disgusted or we're strongly opposed to them because they are not doing it right like I am. Sometimes those are groups of people. So who is it for you that that kind of person is the kind of person that angers me or that I feel better than? Probably you don't actually feel better than. You just look down upon them which reveals you really do think you're better than them. Who are they? Maybe they're rich people. Maybe they're rich people. We live in an area with a lot of wealth, and sometimes there can just be a, a, a disdain for people who have more than I do. Those people are wasting and squandering and spending, and their identities tied up in where they live and what they drive and what they look like and uh, you know, spending all this money to get themselves. I'm not like that. Those kind of people make me sick. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe it's the poor. I don't know. I worked for everything I got. Those people are getting a handout. They're not even working. They're just taking from others. That kind of thing makes me sick because I worked for what I got. See, it could be the rich. It could be the poor. Who is it that you disdain? Maybe it's a different religion. Maybe it's someone that that doesn't believe the scripture and uh, they, they don't believe in Jesus. So what's your attitude towards them? Is it one of, I want to tell them about Jesus so they can know the truth? I'm not saying there's all ways to God. I'm saying there's one truth and it's in Christ. But how do we view those who are not there? What about a Muslim? What about a radical Muslim? How do you view them? I'm sure glad I'm not like them. What about a Hindu? We live in an area that has a burgeoning Hindu population with a temple in our city. What's your attitude there? Glad I'm not like them. I've only got one God and he's true and I'm better than them and they, their culture and their religion and maybe it's another religion. Maybe it's someone who, who's, uh, whose sins are different than your sins. Maybe it's a member of the LGBT community. 
Well, those people, that's self-righteous. It's us people. We're all in need of a savior. All of us need Jesus. It's not us and them. It's not I'm better. That's the big brother. That's standing outside the party, resting in my good works, while Jesus is out pursuing all kinds of people. Maybe it's political. Those liberals, those conservatives. Maybe it's that. I I can't stand those people. The people you can't stand, Jesus is having coffee with them and loving. Jesus is inviting them over and loving them. Maybe it's, maybe it's fundamental, what you view as fundamentalist Christians. That, that, a legalistic Christian is someone maybe who has, maybe has higher moral standards than you, uh, but maybe really is legalistic. Isn't that an irony that I could judge someone that I view as a legalistic Christian? That I could be an older brother calling someone else an older brother. I'm judging them from being an older brother, which means I'm an older brother. <laughs> I'm, I, it's a mirror. So maybe it's the Christian who's more conservative than you that you judge. I don't know who it is, but who is it? See, here's the thing about older brothers. They judge others, and ultimately, they judge God. Because that's his big problem in the story. You should have done this for me. You never threw a party for me. You don't love and respect me. You've never, you've, he's pointing to God. So not only is there a horizontal problem that I'm self-right, I'm better than others, there's also a vertical problem. God, you should have. Well, I don't deserve this. It's when we're angry, bitter. Do you see this? Jealous, envious, greedy, ambitious for our own kingdom and not the father's. That's what the older brother's doing. So the older brother attitude has to be dealt with because it will zap, sap, whatever, all of our spiritual life. It will divide a church, and if it's not dealt with, it will kill a church. Older brother pride religious there's pride and there's religious pride and i and religious pride is destructive it's destructive to a church so we want to address that i want to address that in my life what can i do practically i'm going to tick through a list of a few things here that you can that we can practically do uh number one study grace Study grace from the Bible. You won't get grace any other place. The, impl- the, 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 uh, the natural bent of our heart is to be a younger brother and go do what I want and blow off the Lord or be self-righteous. It, it's, that's the natural bent of my, uh, my heart is to do one of those things. I'll only find Jesus in the Bible. I'll only find grace and truth in him. So here's a suggestion. If you, if you have been convicted as you read this story, if you've been convicted about older brother temptations in your own life and the way you view other people and the way you view God uh, in your life, then I, I might start reading a book like Galatians. Galatians is in the New Testament, but there's a lot of background to it, so I'd, rep- I'd recommend having a guide to help. And I'd read Galatians I'd, out of a study Bible. I, I like the ESV study Bible, but I'd get a study Bible. There's other good study Bibles. There's a new NIV study Bible that's very good. Um, but I would get a study Bible and I would read, so I understood the background and what's going on, and I would read the book of Galatians multiple times. It's, I don't know, it's, it's not that long. I don't know how long it would take you to read it, but it's not that long. So that you're saturating your mind with grace, 
because there we have older brother issues going on and, uh, and, and Paul actually calling out someone else for acting like an older brother in that book. So that would be one place to go. Number two, I've already recommended it. I make no profit. Uh, we don't make, but just go buy the book and read The Prodigal God. That's number two. I'd read that book and I'd reread it. I've reread it recently. I read it about five years ago. I just reread it. It is revolutionary. Number three, I would find someone that you admire who seems to live by grace and I would, I would get some time with them and I would personally ask them questions. Well, how do I know someone who lives by grace? They don't look like the older brother in the story. They look like the father. They're joyful because of Christ, not because of a personality makeup or too much caffeine or something like that, but they're, they're joyful. They're welcoming of other people. All kinds of people want to be with them. They're Christians, but all kinds of people want to be with them. So they're welcoming of other people. They have a heart for others. They celebrate repentance. And other people who maybe are even far from the Lord feel an affectionate warmth from them, not a scolding. They don't scold people that turn to the Lord. They welcome people that turn to the Lord. That kind of a person. Joyful, peaceful, gracious, big-hearted, they look like the Father. And when people are leaning in at all, they're all over them. That, find that kind of person, and there's multiple people like that in our church, many, 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 many. Find one of them and say, tell me your story. How do, you, how do you have a heart of grace? How do you walk in the Lord's grace? How do you give grace to others? How do you do this? So I've given you three steps, and they're the three steps, I think, to almost any problem. Not every, maybe not everything. This won't, like, if you've got a transmission problem with your car, this won't fix it. But most spiritual problems. The scripture is first and foremost. Secondly is teaching from the scripture. So I gave you the book of Galatians. Secondly is teaching. I recommended a book on this, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. And third is people, getting help from a mature Christian, getting discipleship help from a mature Christian. So it's the Bible. The Bible alone is sufficient, but that we help apply the Bible through teaching and through people, not just an author, but through people that can help us. So that, those are the three things I would do. And then here's the last thing. Take steps towards expressing grace to someone that you are self-righteous toward. Oh, Okay, first three steps I was okay with because I can read my Bible and I don't have to change. But if I've got to repent, if I've got to have a different attitude, that's what I do. So I gave a list of all kinds of people. There's many lists. So who is it that you feel self-righteous toward and what is your plan to take steps towards that person? You start by praying. Lord, change my heart towards that person. Help me to see them. Help me, you're seeking and saving the lost. So how can I get behind what you're doing, Lord? How can I seek and save in your, how can I follow you as you seek and save would be a better way to say it. So you start with prayer and then you, you find a way to relate. Who is it? There's probably at least three venues. It could be in your family. Is there a family member that's resisted you, an atheist family member, a family member that has just has a lifestyle that you say they would never come to the Lord? That's the person who comes to the Lord. The person voted most likely to come to the Lord does not come to the Lord in this story. The person most voted least likely to come to the Lord, they're having a party. So you cannot look who's gonna come and who's not. What is your attitude towards that person, your family? Maybe it's one of your children. Maybe it's your parent. Who is it that, you, that you're just resistant? I'm glad I'm not like that. Their sins are so, I just, they make me mad. I'm not talking about righteous anger. I'm talking about it just provokes the older brother in you. Who is that? One would be in your family. Another wouldn't be in your job. 
Here's a great quote. I read a quote. I got a book on uh, how parables apply to the workplace. And on this parable, the guy wrote, the workplace which knows all too well the wasteful tendencies of the younger son and the harshness of the older son needs also the extravagant love of the father. So how do you treat someone that, that you oversee that is wasteful? That's the younger son. Uh, how do you treat someone that's harsh with others? How can you represent the love of the father in your workplace? That's a question to think about. And lastly would be the church. Who is it in the church that you feel there's a separate, you, you judge them, you envy them because God hasn't done for you what he's done for them? The Lord wants you to pray for that person and the Lord wants you to make steps towards that person and reaching out and loving. They may already have come to the party, but the Lord wants you in the party as well. So he's calling you to reach them. The loving Father has sent the Son to seek and to save the lost. And he's called us to be a part of that. And we need him to adjust our hearts to be able to walk out his mission together. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.